Hi, I'm Aviva Rumani, and welcome to episode 28 of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's bi-weekly podcast featuring insights from dealmakers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. On today's show, Lion Tree CEO Arya Borkoff chats with Randy Zuckerberg, the founder and CEO of Zuckerberg Media, where she develops tech, content, and live events, all with the mission of putting intelligent, tech-savvy, entrepreneurial women and girls at the center of pop culture and media. As an early executive at Facebook, Randy created and ran the Social Media Pioneers marketing programs. In their conversation, she and Arya touch on the importance of strong female leaders, the challenge of raising children in our tech-centric culture, and Facebook's entrepreneurial early days. Enjoy their chat. Randy Zuckerberg is an entrepreneur, investor, best-selling author, and tech media personality. She is the founder and CEO of Zuckerberg Media, developing technology, content, and live events, all with the mission of putting intelligent, tech-savvy, entrepreneurial women and girls at the center of pop culture and media. As an early executive at Facebook, Randy created and ran the social media pioneer marketing programs and created Facebook's live streaming video capability during the 2008 presidential inauguration. Randy was nominated for an Emmy Award in 2011 for her innovative coverage of the 2010 midterm elections that integrated online and TV coverage in unique formats. A Harvard graduate, I was there yesterday. Nice. Uh, Randy hosts a weekly business talk radio show, Dot Complicated, on SiriusXM. She has two TV shows currently on air Dot on NBC Universal Kids, winner of Kids Green's Best New Preschool series, about a spunky little girl who uses tech to enhance her everyday adventures and American Dreams on HSN, highlighting entrepreneurs around the country. She's the best-selling author of Dot Complicated and Missy President, and is releasing her fourth book, Pick Three, in May 2018, which we're going to discuss. Randy travels the world, including in New York. All the way to the Upper East Side. <laughs> All the way to the Upper East Side. <laughs> uh, spe- speaking about technology, entrepreneurship, her time as an early employee at Facebook, leading major marketing initiatives in the company's formative years, and shockingly, how to unplug which we'll talk about. Thank you, Randy, for doing this. Thank you. I'm thrilled. Usually I'm on the other side of the interview hosting the show. So this is a a unique treat. It's a treat for me. And I'm glad that uh, we do this, especially right ahead of your book coming out. I actually was at Harvard yesterday at Harvard Law School teaching a guest course on mergers and acquisitions on a case study. So Lucky students. Well, it was great for me also. I really enjoyed it. And they're pretty much there. I mean, there was not much I could teach them at this point, actually. Did you visit any of the old haunts, like any of the old restaurants or anything? No, I went right from there to a uh, Red Sox-Yankees game. Ah, that's great, (laughs) where you have to pretend you're a Red Sox fan. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. No. (laughs) Get beat up. No. (laughs) There are a lot of things I want to talk about today, but if I had to categorize our discussion, it would be I want to talk about your early career, and then I want to talk about women's issues, including gender in the workplace, investing, leadership, and then I want to talk about podcasting overall and your new book coming out. Perfect. I love the agenda. Oh, we have an agenda. We have an outline. We're organized. But first, I want to talk about this idea of unplugging because, you know, <laughs> I've seen you in action in many different forums and different ways socially and professionally. And, uh, I don't get the unplugging part of it, apparently, because you're always on the go. You have plenty of ideas. You have outlets for those ideas. You have a lot of activities. You're like the Ryan Seacrest of like the media and technology world. You're always busy. So uh, tell me about how you actually unplug and how you prioritize that. It's certainly a challenge. And I like to say that the phone is my best friend and my worst enemy because it is the reason I can be in Sydney, Australia one day and Norway the next and away from my children and managing my business. 
But at the same time, I sometimes feel like I get so caught up in answering other people's questions and messages that I forget to take the 30,000 foot view of my own life. I feel like if you talk to any CEO, uh, the one unanimous thing they all say is that you cannot change the world if you're glued to a screen 24 hours a day. Every top CEO has some sort of meditation practice, exercise they have built in, even if they don't call it unplugging, they've built in some aspect of their day where they can actually just take stock of their business and themselves. So I think it's important for all of us to think about that. Like Um, a Sabbath. Exactly. Like I actually refer to it as a digital Sabbath because I think it's so important that it doesn't have to be a full day. That seems unattainable to most people, but even an evening or a few hours where you can put the phone down, I think you'll really surprise yourself. Yeah. One time when we first started the firm, we're located in, on Madison Avenue, luckily, and um, not too far from a park. One executive came to me, and we had a meeting scheduled for the office. He said, you know what? Let's just take a walk in the park. And I said, for our meeting? He goes, yeah, let's just take a walk. And I said, that's amazing. So we took a walk in the park for half an hour, 45 minutes, accomplished just as much, and we were outside. And then I started to try to incorporate that into my schedule, not always successfully, but just to be able to say, let's take a walk in the park for a little bit and do some thinking. Totally. I mean, look at us right now. We're having a conversation. We're looking at each other in the eye. It's so nice. And and it's really rare, especially when we're with our children. I think it's very important to set a tone of putting the phone away and giving undivided attention because children learn their own relationship with technology from observing what we do. Yeah. For sure. Your children, are they incredibly active in technology? Are they adopting your philosophy they, of you know, disconnecting? It's, it's funny because personally, my view is that tech time and screen time are two different things. I think they have blurred together in our society. So I think when you start talking about children in tech, people's mind, you see it, their eyes immediately go to an image of a kid on a sofa glued to an iPad, disconnecting from the world. For me, I think there are hundreds of ways to teach children about tech that never once involves a screen. So for me, I actually limit the amount of screen time that my kids get. But tech time, I'm all for it. I'm all for things that are building engineering and math and science and and a love of STEM fields. That's great. So let's go back to the beginning of the days of Randy Zuckerberg. Your first job out of Harvard was actually with the advertising giant Ogilvy & Mather. Yes, And uh, I I should mention before that my aspiration in life was actually to sing on Broadway my entire childhood. That's what I wanted to do. And then uh, I promptly got rejected from the music major in my first week of college. Are you a good singer? Obviously not that good if I got rejected after, you know, training for years. And so that was a, you know, a cold, harsh dose of reality. I like to say it's my first entrepreneurial pivot at 18 years old where I I had to figure out a new plan. And um, my mom is a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, I vowed I would never, ever take a psychology course. You know, Mm -hmm. I was like, Mom, I'll never be like you. I took Psych 101, (laughs) fell in love with it, majored in psych, and then went to work in marketing. So yeah, Ogilvy and Mather. And it was an amazing place to work because I had a female CEO, Shelly Lazarus, who started as an intern and worked her way up the ranks to CEO. So uh, that was an, an incredibly inspiring place to start my career. A role model for you. Absolutely. Role model. And what do you think about the business of marketing? Because the business of marketing has changed completely in the last 10 years or even beyond that. What's changed since you were at Ogilvy? It's funny you say that because Ogilvy is uh, pretty well known for their entry-level program. When you start, you do about a one-year-long boot camp where you do a marketing campaign for a nonprofit, and that's how you learn. So everyone in my entry-level year 
got staffed on some glamorous project like filming a television campaign or working with their celebrity spokespeople. And I was the one person that got chosen for a new team called Digital and Interactive Marketing. And Ari, I was pissed off. I was like, this is a dead end job. What the hell is this like digital marketing thing that's going nowhere? Like I want to be with the celebrities. That's like the equivalent in our world of equities in Dallas. That's right. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, it turned out to be a pretty lucky placement because just a few years later, digital and interactive was the hot buzzword. At 23, 24 years old, I had people reporting to me and all of those other people were still getting lattes on television sets. That ended up being a a pretty lucky placement that positioned me for all of the changes that occurred in marketing in the next 20 years. But within marketing is really a respect for brands. You are now living in a world where you have your own brand and your own brands of your products and your books and your theater and, and the radio shows, et cetera. What did that experience teach you about how to market brands in a traditional and digital format? It's funny because uh, I never really thought about my own personal brand at all during that time. Even when I was at Facebook, I spent so much time helping politicians use social media, helping celebrities, helping businesses. It really wasn't until probably a decade later that I started thinking like, wait, here I am coaching all of these people on how to use their megaphone to have their own personal brand. Like maybe I should think about that too, instead right. of just wasting the, this incredible tool that I have at my own disposal. That's why I almost feel like college students who are graduating today are in such a lucky position because they grew up with these tools. They understand the value of a personal brand. They are savvy. It's really an incredible time to be graduating school and going out into the workforce and both getting a job, but also establishing yourself. There's also a democratization of branding right now for individuals, right? Because it Mm. used to be there were celebrity brands that were unattainable and there was the rest of us. Yes. And then with social media and everything else, it's sort of like this leveling of a playing field of a personal brand. And everyone has the, the opportunity to brand themselves in a certain way with a mass audience. It is. And we're all basically sitting with a giant megaphone. I think the one big question for our time is if we start to enter a world where everyone's shouting, is anyone still listening? And I think 10 years ago, people hadn't really discovered how to shout yet into that megaphone of social media, but now everyone has figured it out. We're at a world where we really need to figure out how to sit back and listen and not always be sharing. And not everything is about our personal brand all the time. Interesting. We're not going to talk a lot about Facebook today, but let's talk about it back in the day because it's arguably the biggest, most successful startup story in our history so far. Take us through like the early days of how it was to live through that success. And I also want to get into like how you dealt with looking at millennial talent because mm. I think today we're all trying to get used to the millennial generation different from us. How do we manage them? The entire Facebook story at the early stage was all millennials. Yes. I'm so glad that I worked in corporate America before I went to Facebook Mm -hmm. because that helped me. A, it helped me appreciate a good work atmosphere when I found one. There is nothing as humbling as making photocopies for a year right after you graduate from an Ivy League school to then appreciate a work atmosphere where everyone is encouraged to bring ideas to the table. So I'm incredibly glad I had that. But it also fostered the idea of teamwork. And so that was one of the things that was really funny is when 
millennials would come and interview at Facebook. And, you know, here we are, we're offering like four free gourmet meals a day in a gym and all these things. And they're like, yeah, I don't know. And I'm like, you have no idea. You literally have no idea how great this is. How do you build Um, that appreciation into the system? I don't know. It's hard, especially out in Silicon Valley, where all companies are now starting to offer those benefits to compete with one another. Because once Google offered those benefits, suddenly everyone had to in order to compete to get the top engineering talent. It is almost an expectation out there. So that's a whole other thought. I was like, you guys have no idea what it's like to have to like pay for your own lunch right. <laughs> at so. work. I mean, the early days were pretty amazing. I joined when there was about somewhere between 15 and 20 people in the company. And then when I left, it was tens of thousands of, of people and a, a public company. So there were obviously a lot of change in that time. When I started, we were in a tiny office above a Chinese restaurant in Palo Alto. I think I had 20 different business cards because I was one of the only non-engineering hires. So depending on who we were meeting with, I'd be like, who am I today? No, biz dev. <laughs> okay. Sales, marketing. And I just kind of grabbed the appropriate business card that I would think that person would want to meet with. And that's who I was. As the company grew, we got more specialized. And for me, I always had a big passion for media, how people were communicating and sharing their stories through social media. So that actually led me to my work on politics around the 2008 election, which was a pretty incredible experience. And I think a very pivotal moment for putting Facebook on the map as not just a service for college students. Was that your first experience in politics? It was. I had never worked in politics before. And actually the reason that we got into it was because I saw that Barack Obama's campaign had something like 10 different Facebook profiles, because at that point there was no celebrity pages. It was only profiles. And when you capped out at 5,000 friends, that was it. So they started like 10 different pages and we're posting the same thing across all of them. And so we started talking internally. I think, you know, we need a new product for celebrities because this isn't sustainable for his team to manage, you know, a hundred Facebook pages once he caps out. They were like, okay, great, Randy, go run it. (laughs) I'm like, shoot, should never have volunteered that idea. From there, I basically took on all of our political strategy and working with campaigns for the next few years. And it was pivotal in in the 08 election, obviously, and since then. It was. That was a really interesting moment because a lot of the candidates in that election avoided social media entirely. They didn't believe in it. They didn't feel like reaching a young audience was that important. I think really made people wake up in this country and take a look at what the Obama campaign was doing and how that had been so successful. Do you ever think that we'll get to the point where people will be able to vote? On Facebook or other platforms? I do. And maybe this will get a little nerdy, but I think especially with everything that's going on with blockchain technology, I think we're finally at a place where we can actually do sensitive things like voting online because of a blockchain ledger that can never be tampered with. You know, anytime you would recount the votes, it would be the same. So I think we are entering a world where in the next 10 years or so, that could be a very real possibility. The irony of what's going on now with looking back at the last election, is that we lived through, you know, Al Gore and... Right, with the Florida recount. I mean, like all of us sitting there just like painfully, like watching the votes get recounted. Yeah, and and now it's like almost people prefer that versus like dealing with this online, uh, you know, mess with all these different influences. But in reality, it's just a hiccup because, you know, logically speaking, once you create a secure environment, 
that can be the best way to register a vote. Absolutely. And I think people are scared of voting online right now because they don't know, can that be hackable? Can people go in and change votes? That's very real. But once you look at some of these distributed ledgers and blockchain technology, it suddenly feels like a very real possibility. Yeah. So what advice would you have for young entrepreneurs that are trying to create the new Facebook today? It's definitely a new world out there. I think, well, for women, my biggest recommendation would be to have a a man's name like Randy. Like, I can't tell you how many meetings I got because I would email someone and they'd be like, oh, thought they were meeting with a dude. And then really? I'd show up. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was like my competitive advantage having a guy's name in Silicon Valley. I'd show up and they'd be like, where's Randy? And I'm like, <laughs> sucker. <laughs> got the meeting. And when you say um, this is he or this right. is she, they were caught off guard and disarmed by it. Huh? Exactly. So uh, anyway, that's, that's terrible advice. <laughs> yeah, but. <exactly. laughs> Not where I thought you were going to go. I think in some ways it's never been easier and never been harder to have a startup. The fact that anyone with a laptop and a Starbucks can start a company. I mean, you don't even need to know how to program anymore to start a company. There are tools that can build a website for you, build an online store, start email newsletters. Everything can be done in a click of a button. But what that also means is that everyone else is doing that too, that there are millions of other competitors. So you really need to make sure that you're willing to put in the hard work. And it's crowded. When I look at a startup these days, I don't even look at the product anymore. I just look at the team. And I think, is this a team that is willing to put in the hard work? Is this a team that can execute? Because it's now so easy to start something that it's mostly about the grit that the team has to like push through all the millions of other companies. It's so interesting you said, because obviously in building Liontree, we're not a technology company, but we could act like one in some ways. And I said to everyone here, we want to build it with the right people and the right investment in our infrastructure, finance, technology, legal, all those things like in the walls of the place so that we're not defined by our product. Meaning if one day I decide we want to make Starbucks coffee instead of mergers and acquisitions, not that we would do that, but can the firm pivot based on the people we have and the systems we have to be nimble enough to kind of ebb and flow with the times and the cycles? Totally. I mean, you have to be able to pivot. I remember the day the iPhone came out in Silicon Valley. And at that point, I mean, there were so many giant tech companies where nobody was thinking about mobile. Everyone was thinking about, you know, engaging with the site on a laptop or desktop computer. And all of a sudden the iPhone came out and in one day, everyone's business has changed in Silicon Valley. Some companies were able to be nimble enough to pivot. Other companies weren't. They doubled down on their plan and their strategy. And, you know, ultimately that really hurt them. So I think no matter how good you have it today, there's always, you know, that next Apple product, that next consumer trend that could pop up at any second and cause you to need to change your entire business. Yeah, I think that is the probably the true success story of Facebook's IPO or post-public years is not just the creation of the connected network and the social media, but the pivot to mobile happened so yeah. quickly. And because it was, a, like you said, a shock to the system in the Valley that I think Facebook's management team and Facebook's strategy shifted so effortlessly into mobile and so quickly. And I mean, it was a real concerted effort and the team took every engineer in the company and put them back through engineer boot camp to learn how to code for a mobile environment, which meant for a few months, there was a real hit to our current product, the desktop product, because we took all those engineers off of that to retrain them. New products, everything had to be shown to the leaders 
in mobile instead of on desktop to see how people were using it. But I think that that paid off in spades in the long run, but it's tough. It's really tough when you are sitting there and you have investors and you have shareholders to say, we're going to take all of our engineers off of the product and retrain them is a difficult decision. Yeah, for sure. You've been a huge advocate for women's issues and leadership in the workplace and otherwise. I want to get into that a little bit. And was that always part of your upbringing? And where you said, like, this is going to be my mantra and, you know, strong influence from your mother. Or did you see issues in the workplace and you said, this is my job to create and to correct these things? I never thought of myself as a feminist or anything. In fact, I would laugh at my mom when my mom would tell me about how she was the only woman in her medical school class. I would laugh at her and I'd be like, mom... It's like 1999. There's no more glass ceiling, you know, like whatever, mom, go away. And then I got to Silicon Valley and I realized like, oh my gosh, I was the only woman in the room for about 10 years. That was a really shocking thing. And my last book that I wrote a few years ago is called Dot Complicated because I always had a very complicated relationship with Silicon Valley. On one hand, I woke up every morning feeling so lucky and grateful to have an opportunity to be at a company like Facebook and in Silicon Valley where it had this entrepreneurial ethos. And on the other hand, I woke up every morning feeling like, why the hell am I the only woman in the room? These are six-figure salary jobs that companies can't even hire enough people for. How are there no women that are going into this field? And so eventually for me, I came to the hypothesis that I wasn't going to be able to really do something about this issue from inside one company or even maybe inside the small insular area of Silicon Valley. So I ended up leaving the company about seven years after I joined in order to make this kind of my second career. You know, what could I do to really make sure that 10 years from now, it looks very, very different. And how are you measuring your progress so far? Uh, It's definitely a hard challenge. You know, there's actually fewer women in tech today than there were 20 or 30 years ago, which is challenging. I split my time in a few areas because I feel like this is a pretty complicated issue that you Mm -hmm. need to tackle. All my research shows that it is nine years old when we lose girls in technology. So I started out speaking to women. And over the years, I have pivoted to almost exclusively working on children's entertainment and content because at nine years old, a girl starts forming her identity and starts saying things like, I'm good at this. I'm not good at this. I'm smart or I'm not good at math. If you don't get a girl saying or at least thinking that she's good at math and science and tech by third grade, it's exponentially harder to get her interested later on. So Again, that was kind of a business pivot that I ended up doing because I started off speaking to women and traveling around the world, speaking to women. And I still do a lot of that because I still believe that's important. But now a lot of my business is around girls and talking to girls and educators. But I've recently added kind of a new line to my business because especially with everything I'm seeing with cryptocurrency, with artificial intelligence, I worry sometimes that here we are on one side working to help women catch up in the fields that already exist, only to what? Only to be completely left behind of the new fields. Cryptocurrency is 2% women that are involved in any aspect of the crypto industry. It's going to be a $600 billion industry this year. So what am I doing, you know, helping women to get ahead and catch up and have equality if then we're still only going to be 2% of these emerging industries? I have some other statistics. It affects the investing business. So I'll give you a Bloomberg study from 2016 that 
says 7% of the 2,000 VC founders analyzed were women, and women-founded companies raised an average of $77 million compared to $100 million for male-led startups. And more than that, only 15 of the nearly 230 quote-unquote unicorn companies globally, less than 7%, were founded or co-founded by a woman. So there's clearly a disconnect here. I mean, what are the VCs missing? Because a lot of it could start from the investing side of the business. Yeah, a lot of the top VCs are friends of mine. And I mean, they have daughters. They're not like sitting there thinking, I'm only going to invest in men. But I think what happens is people tend to invest in what they feel comfortable with products they can relate to or understand. And then the people that they invest in go on to hire people who they feel comfortable with, who are like them. And it's this ecosystem that becomes incredibly hard to break. So I think, you know, we definitely need more female investors having a diverse voice at the table to help with that. I advise and invest in a lot of companies and my first question whenever I'm on the phone with the founders is like, how many women have you hired recently? What are you thinking about? Because I think it's not just a nice to have to have diversity. It's important if you're running a global company. A lot of these social media companies have majority women well, customers. Also, I think investing, when you take a step back, is all about finding disconnects and capitalizing on them or yes. uncovering biases and removing them for the benefit of financial returns. And this is a bias in yes. the system. So to me, it's more simple than any of that, which is obviously important to have more parity and have more diversity. But it's also, this is an investment opportunity. If there's this kind of disconnect in the marketplace because women are not getting a chance to either invest or hire properly, then other investors should come in and foster that disconnect and create more parity just because there's an investment opportunity here that's all about uncovering the bias, and this is one of them. I think you're right. I sort of think the traditional venture model is just pretty broken Mm -hmm. as it is right now and in ripe need of disruptment. It is interesting when you look at the fact, like you said, only six, seven percent of investing dollars are going to women. I found actually in my own angel investing portfolio, the companies that are founded by women do so much better because the women are like, oh, hell no, I am not going to be that one woman whose company fails. Like, yeah. you know, they feel like they have the weight of the world of all female entrepreneurs on them. So like they just buckle down six times as hard as the male founders yeah. and really work for it for yeah. that return. Do you want to give us any examples of some of the female founded companies that you yeah. believe in? Yeah, there's a woman named Britt Morin who has a media company called Britain Co. that I was an early investor in and then participate in a follow around who I think is just one of the most hardworking. And she really stumbled on the trend of talking to millennials way before anyone else, before the Refinery 29s and before a lot of those companies. So she's a great one that I'm really excited about. I was an investor in Hello Giggles, which is another millennial site that recently sold. And then I have a lot of products in kind of the mommy space. So I was an investor in a company called Moxley, a smart breast pump that recently sold to Medela. My portfolio right now is about 20 companies, and I would say about 70% of them are female-founded. Wow. Do you think in the next five to 10 years, we will see a global-influenced company like an Amazon or a Pinterest run or led by a female founder? I absolutely hope so. I think there's still a lot of challenges in the early days. I do wonder if, you know, some of these early YouTube, Twitter, Facebook companies had been started by a woman, if they would have been able to get that kind of capital that mm-hmm. they needed to start. So if they had a name like Randy, they probably would have. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> if you only communicated over email, so they never actually met you, then, you know, maybe you have a chance. I think especially when you look at the New York 
tech ecosystem. I've been really excited to move back here because I think this is a much more uh, encouraging place for female entrepreneurs. In New York. Yes. Silicon Valley, there's still a lot of baggage. There's a lot of that ecosystem that's going to need to be upended to give women a fair shot. But in New York, where the game is really e-commerce and shopping and a lot of the interesting startups coming out of New York are founded by and led by women who are really passionate and and real leaders in the e-commerce space. So that's why I'm excited about all these kind of pop-up Silicon Valley communities around the world because they're getting started in a way that doesn't have that established male-dominated ecosystem. Yeah, I will say Silicon Valley is an incredibly exciting place to be and it's very open-minded as long as you conform to Silicon Valley's view of being open-minded. That's right. Exactly right. If you talk to a billionaire in Silicon Valley, they'll tell you it's a meritocracy. (laughs) Exactly. Sometimes it's good just to alter the perspective, and obviously it's a global marketplace. Absolutely. You know, I spend a lot of time traveling the world, as I know you do, and, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm really excited about a lot of startups coming out of Europe. I think Europe is a really interesting place because in the United States, you have media in New York and banking, and then you have to fly seven hours across the country to get to the technology hub. Right. Whereas in Europe, in London, you have all of that happening in one city. And, and Paris. Exactly. And Germany, right? That's exactly right. And, and so Sweden. It gives a really unique advantage to founders there who have the entire ecosystem in their backyard. I agree with you. And I also think, and one of the reasons we've been investing in Europe and also Latin America is um, the broadband network platforms are also a little bit more sophisticated and yes. national in nature. Right here, we still have fragmentation around broadband, et cetera. So when you have the backdrops and the infrastructure all in place, then having applications for that are readily apparent. I completely agree with that. And I've been spending a lot of time in Mexico and Mm -hmm. a lot of Latin American countries lately, and I I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. So let's talk about podcasting for a bit, because obviously we both now fall in love with this medium. Yes. uh, And you are um, clearly incredibly successful in building your business and your brand and making an impact over the podcasting platform. Just to give a few statistics here, because I, I like to be reminded of as well, but in the U.S., the audience for podcasting has grown over the past 10 years with now 26% of Americans listening to at least one podcast in the past month. Awesome. There are more than 525,000 active podcasts available on Apple Podcasts, the genre's most popular platform today. More than one out of every four American ages 12 and up, about 73 million people, listen to podcasts at least monthly. So you have a weekly show now on SiriusXM called Dot Complicated with Randy Zuckerberg. Tell us about the show and maybe you could tell us in your radio voice. Oh, yes. Well, welcome to Dot Complicated with Randy Zuckerberg. I started it actually as a project while I was on maternity leave. I was looking for something to keep my foot in the door. I have two sons. My first son... I think I took two weeks off of work. You know, when you're at a startup, when you're at something like Facebook, it's, you know, nonstop. With my second son, I was like, I'm not going to do that again. I want to actually enjoy this baby and enjoy my life a little. And I had been in discussion with SiriusXM and I they offered to set up a studio for me inside the Palo Alto JCC, hmm. where my son was in preschool so that I could go there and during my maternity leave. So I took them up and I thought, this will be a great temporary project to keep my foot in the door, keep talking to people in the business world, but be on leave. And now three years later, I feel like I'm always at SiriusXM hosting shows. And it's been a really incredible experience for me. And I'm sure you have this experience too, where um Audio is so intimate. 
it's so amazing. Like you're in someone's ear for an hour Mm -hmm. talking to them, especially in a world where we're moving towards shorter and shorter video clips and social media and 15 second Instagram stories. It's really unique to have the opportunity to be in someone's ear for an hour and uh, exciting. And you really get to tell stories in depth. So I've really enjoyed that. And the storytelling is key, right? Because that is the hallmark of even great video and films and content of all kinds, right? But I feel like in audio, the storytelling, it's much more, you said intimate, it's personal. It almost feels one-on-one, right? Because we're sitting here talking in person. I love watching you while we're talking and seeing your reaction, but hearing you in my ear is so special, right? And it's like a nice connection that I think we're having not only with us, but hopefully with the people listening here. I really like the audio platform as well. I think it's great. I mean, you put a camera on someone, they act differently. They sit a little stiffer, they open up a little less, but when it's just two people talking in a microphone, you really capture someone's essence, I think. I want to let your listeners know that I try to practice what I preach. So when you and I sat down to first talk about the podcast, my first question was like, how many women have you had on, you know, making sure. And I've been really impressed with, you know, how many female guests you've had and how you use this show as an opportunity to really share and highlight diversity in business. So I want to applaud you for that. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Well, Best is yet to come. We have a lot more to do. But I want to talk about your latest book, which is coming out in May, yes. uh, right around the corner. And it's called Pick Three. You can have it all, just not every day. Yes. So I love the title. Thank Explain you. to us what that means and how you're excited about the book launch. I'm incredibly excited about this. I have believed for a long time that there's really no such thing as work-life balance. I know everyone tries to pretend there is, but when I look back at the things I've done in my life, as I'm sure you have, the things I am most proud of that I would tell my you know great grandkids about are not things I did when I was balanced in life. You know, I was incredibly lopsided or incredibly prioritizing that one thing, and that's how I was able to do something that I was really proud of. I want to take people away from trying to focus on being well-balanced and free them from that guilt and allow them to say, you know what, for a short period at a time, like I'm going to be incredibly lopsided and prioritize these few things as long as in the long run, I pick everything. The book is about work, sleep, family, friends, fitness, pick three. You cannot pick all five of those every single day. You can pick a different three every day. You know, every morning is a new opportunity to wake up and prioritize differently. I'm assuming it's not just for mothers, it's for all parents, all people. It's for everyone. I actually, when I first started writing about this, I started writing about it for entrepreneurs. I called it the entrepreneur's dilemma and started writing about how you go all in on your company while not burning out and really thinking about that. And as I researched and have been working on this probably for about six or seven years, I've really found that it applies to everyone. It also applies to people who don't get to pick who where life picks for you. You know, there's a lot of people who are single parents or in situations where they're dealing with a a health crisis at home or get laid off their job and you don't always get to pick. And in some ways, alleviating that guilt and giving yourself the opportunity to prioritize where it needs to happen in a crisis moment, it applies to everyone. Yeah. I can't wait to read it. Thank you. It was great. I got to interview about... 50 people over the course of the book. I interviewed everyone from a doctor who does pediatric organ transplants. He told me, he's like, even if I'm at my own wedding and my pager goes off, 
I would leave to go make sure that I could do that heart transplant. That's definitely not someone who has balance in their life, but I mean, literally a life-changing job that they're doing. I interviewed single moms. I interviewed people who never want to have children, professional elite athletes. Yeah, I always say like about our firm, even to my family who asked, how are you working so hard? And put aside the fact that I have a passion for it. I said, pretend like I own a restaurant and the restaurant's open 24-7. You could maybe leave the restaurant for an hour or two, but you can't take off like two weeks think the restaurant's going to function, right? Until it's actually built out with a whole staff, et cetera. So at the very beginning of the firm, I kept saying like, just pretend I own a restaurant and it's happening all the time. Can't just walk out. That's right. Yeah. I mean, especially if you're doing a startup, you have to be picking work every day. You know, that's what you do, but you hope that over the long run, you build something successful enough that you don't have to pick it every day. Yeah. So a few fun questions to finish off with that we tend to ask people, but I'm going to tailor them a little bit more towards technology for you. So Bitcoin, believer or seller? I am a believer. I think that when I look at the traditional model of VC and these things that are so broken, I actually think that cryptocurrency could be an incredibly exciting leveling field to get more diversity and more women into funding. So I don't know if it's going to be Bitcoin that's going to survive or Ethereum or, or any of these. I'm a big believer in the space. Yeah. I think it, there are still disconnects, right? Because I always say we're we're talking about cryptocurrencies and digital payments, et cetera, yet we're still measuring the health of the markets on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. That's right. right? So something's going to give there. That's right. And also crypto is not at a place where like I would go into Starbucks and buy something with Bitcoin. I mean, it takes still, you know, hours for a transaction to go through and like a $12 transaction fee. So until crypto can get to the place where I could walk into a Starbucks and buy a coffee with it, there's no way it can achieve its goal of being mainstream. But I'm excited about the opportunity, especially around the underlying blockchain technology as well. Yeah, and I like your point on taking a traditional male-dominant industry, so to speak, on financial services and now having a chance for a real parity and diversity through the new generation of technology and crypto and financial technology. Absolutely. So we'll see. I'm actually starting to do a lot more lecturing and keynoting at different crypto and blockchain conferences. So we'll see. I'm glad that, you know, all those crypto bros will have to sit there and listen to a woman on stage for an hour. (laughs) Hopefully many women. Um, Favorite movie of all time? Oh my gosh. It's got to be The Sound of Music. Every Thanksgiving we play it and we all sing along with it and like argue over who gets to be what part. I love it. And aside from your own show, what's your favorite podcast you're listening to right now? I'm listening to a musical podcast right now called 36 Questions that I'm obsessed with. Jonathan Groff, who is the original king in Hamilton and many other parts uh, in Broadway shows. It's only two people. It's him and another woman. It's a love story that they sing. It's told over a, a musical podcast. So I've been really into that these days. That's amazing. Randy, I have to say, I'm very impressed with your enthusiasm, your energy, your entrepreneurial spirit, your thirst for changing the world. Thank you. And I believe you have a relentless ambition around that, which is already showing success. I can't wait to watch you in your career take on different challenges and show results. And obviously, I look forward to being by your side the whole way through. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for all the great work that you do. And it's been a real pleasure being on your podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much, Randy. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can always follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time.
audiation.